Oh man, I got a lot of ground to cover in this podcast. Uh, I've been asked a lot lately about the sin nature. You know, every now and then in broadcast or in a message or teaching or someplace I happen to be preaching, I'll just say random things about the sin nature. Kind of like your sin nature was crucified with Christ. You didn't resurrect your sin nature. Uh, You don't have a brand new sin nature because you're in Christ now. You've been given uh, uh, the ability to partake in the divine nature. You've been given the nature of of God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We just have to learn to access the reality of the truth of our identity instead of living out of a false and learned identity. Uh, People say, well, how come I still sin? How come I still have the tendency or perhaps the desire to go out and do things that are contrary to the values of of the kingdom of God, the values of heaven, the values of of the the heart of the Father as we know it? You know, and I'll typically respond by saying something like, oh, it's because you have a a sin habit that you've developed over the course of time. Uh, it, it, desires and habits super closely tied together. And after years and years of practicing something, uh, God may come in and deal with the desire and convict you of the desire, but you'll have to do something about the habit. And that comes to the place of personal discipline, brings us to that, that area where personal discipline becomes an issue. So we don't discipline ourselves to become holy. We, we uh, exercise personal discipline to come into line with the reality of the truth of our identity because of what Christ has made us because of the shed blood, the finished work of the cross. Holiness has been an imputed impartation to you because of Jesus. And he comes into your heart, changes things, changes your life from the inside out, invites you into his heart, and you begin to live in a whole new world of, of understanding of the truth of who you really are. And on the basis of that, we start to uh, recognize that there are things that we do and have perhaps done in our life that we've developed desires and habits in that are less than healthy and less than God's best for us. All of that stuff. Okay, so you say, Bill, it sounds like you're just rambling about revelation regarding the sin nature. Well, today I want to concisely give you some biblical understanding and biblical teaching to answer the question, do I have a sin nature anymore? Is a sin nature a part of my identity? Am I always going to struggle? Uh, I get this a lot. People really, really have issue with this thing of the sin nature. And part of it, I think, is, a, you know, it's it's become such an ingrained teaching uh, to us that that we are always going to struggle and always going to have issues that people are like, yeah, you know, I'm never going to get past this sin nature. I'm always going to have struggles. Just because you struggle with things and just because you still deal with temptations that are within the context of the, the world system that we live in doesn't necessarily prove that you and I have a sin nature. We need to learn how to live by the nature of Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that's what I want to talk to you about today. That's just kind of a, in a nutshell, where we're going. Uh, Get your Bibles out. We're going to go all over the place. I'm going to show you some things today about who you really are that I hope is going to enlighten and encourage and strengthen your faith in the finished work of the cross of Jesus Christ. A lot of people believe that there's this tale of two natures. They they think they <clears throat> they live this Christian life on one hand as much as they possibly can, but there's an internal conflict with these these this dual nature. Uh, one part is wants to serve Jesus, and the other part is all living for yourself. But Romans chapter six verse six 
tells us that our old sinful nature was crucified on the cross with Christ. You say, well, that happened before I was even here. That's right. You know, the saints were home, uh, brought into that place of, of union, reconciled union with God before we even got here. That's why Ephesians 1.4 says, God chose you to be in him, in Christ, from before the foundation of the world. Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So the death of Christ on the cross is not, not God's knee-jerk reaction to man's introduction of sin into the world. Uh, the, the ability for us to sin is simply a product of God's uh, uh, given, giving us the capacity to make a choice. You know, the Bible tells us uh, it's for freedom that Christ set us free. It's not for bondage. It's not to be entangled with the yoke of slavery. It's for freedom. God has a high value for freedom. But it's meant for us to live in freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. When we choose sin, we choose bondage. So it is, uh, it's, it's for legitimate, authentic freedom that the cross even exists. And so you and I, when we come to Christ, we hopefully don't answer the call to an ultimatum, a life of, a, of a bondage and servitude. Now, Paul called himself a bondservant of Christ. James, the brother of Jesus, called himself a bondslave, a bondservant to Christ. What was he doing? They recognized that in obedience to Christ, it walking in union with Christ was legitimately the way that we discover how to be free in this life. For Jesus said, I came to give you life and life more abundantly. So we discover this life, first off, by letting go of this idea that we have a sin nature that we can't deal with or you know, just because temptation is around you, you feel like, oh, I, I, I can't help it. I'm still, still tempted. Your ability to be tempted is not proof of a sin nature. There's some things that just flat look like fun and the exercise of those things feels like your free will to make a choice. But you know, wisdom is the ability to spot regret in advance. And when we begin to realize that there are things that tempt us in this life that will become a chain of bondage to us, then we start understanding that, that sin is there uh, often to, to legitimately take away our freedom, not to give freedom to us. When we respond to the temptations that are around us by giving into those things, often the result is addiction. That's why 12-step groups are so packed Meetings are so packed with people who are looking for some sort of support camaraderie to get out from under the bondage that they found themselves in. But it always starts out looking like freedom. Take the advice of the millions of people who've gone before you and recognize this is not a, uh, this is not a, a time for us to walk in bondage anymore. This is a time for us to live in freedom. Let's just hang out in Romans 6, 6 for just a second here. It says, for we know that our old self was crucified with him, with Jesus Christ, in order that our body of sin, that would be your sinful nature, might be done away with. 
The word's done away with is the Greek word katargo. And it just simply is an appropriate translation. Actually, New American Standard renders it as done away with, which tells us that from the scriptural context, your old sinful nature, that old man died, was buried in baptism in Christ's death. Whenever you get baptized, what you're doing is you're identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And you are immersed in that moment in the very identity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The King James Version translates that same word as the word destroyed. So either it's done away with or it's destroyed, but it seems pretty clear that the cross did something here. Now, this fits with the entirety of the scriptural context of Romans 6 that says our sinful nature was literally destroyed, done away with, let's just say annihilated by Christ's death on the cross. But there are people that will say, well, that sinful nature still resides within us. And so in in that case, they'll say, well, actually that word katarego should be translated as inactive or idle. In other words, they think that a Christian's nature as sinful is not actually dead, but resides in us much like an idle or dormant virus or like a volcano, which can at times spontaneously explode and cause destruction whenever a Christian sins. Now, maybe that's a healthy perspective for us to take so that we don't fall into the trap of sin. But this is not scriptural, and it's not even logical. Uh, Every time this word is used, and it's 27 times, by the way, in the New Testament, it's done away with or destroyed. It's the proper context of the translation. It's not idle. It's not dormant. It's not just laying in wait there. That's not the way this thing works. The nature has been done away with and destroyed. You can actually translate it also as removed. And this is how it's translated in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. And that verse describes how the old covenant veil that blinds uh, people from seeing Jesus, let's specifically uh, the uh, Jewish uh, people from seeing Jesus as their Messiah, that is removed. That's katargo. Whenever somebody turns to Christ. Now, the veil in that case That doesn't mean that the veil is just inactive or pulled back and is going to get dropped in front of their eyes again at any second. No, it it translates as removed or taken away. Another uh, instance is 2 Corinthians 3, verse 14. Another example there, Paul uses this word in this verse. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will destroy them both. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. So, once again, the best translation of the word katargo is destroy or done away with. doesn't mean to become inactive, idle, or dormant. Now, this isn't some semantic argument here. When the word isn't translated properly in Romans 6, 6, it totally changes the meaning of the scriptures. A lot of people also believe that Romans chapter 7... I know that a lot of people right now are listening going, yeah, I read Romans 6, and, and that sounded really great. But then I got to Romans 7, and whoa, Paul just turned schizophrenic on us. And a lot of people think that Romans 7 describes 
this conflict between these dual natures that exist in every born-again believer. Uh, uh, my friend George and Banoff always used to say, you know, that people used to say you're like a, like a, it's like a doghouse. You've got an evil dog and a good dog inside of you. And the old message about that was, uh, you know, which one wins the fight? Well, whichever one you feed the most. I understand the cleverness of the analogy, but he said, I got a revelation one day where the Lord said, you're not a doghouse. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. That's actually who you are. So let me explain Romans 7 somewhat academically, but as simply as I possibly can. Romans 7 is a literary tool known as a narrative monologue. And it's, it's where, where Paul is stepping into the mind of the audience. And he has to do this at this point because in Romans chapter 5, he speaks of the fact that Christ's death and resurrection did more to save you than Adam's fall did to condemn you. And he makes this case three times in a row in Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 6, he tells us that the ramifications of the, the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is that you're no longer a slave to sin and your old nature has been completely done away with. And by now, he realizes that I've got to help these people understand that I know what they're thinking. And so he steps into the voice of his reader. And certainly he can identify with where they are because of where he used to be. In Romans chapter 7, Paul switches the voice of, of the speaker to now the first person emphasizing the the. The fact that it is impossible for a person in their own effort to somehow try to keep the law. Paul wrote his letter to the Romans in the Greek language, and and this is a really precise and really expressive language. And basically what he uses is the present tense, and he describes a past action and experience. So in Romans 7, Paul makes really, really good use of what's known as historical present tense in this narrative monologue. It's in the Greek language. It vividly describes this hopelessness of a person who wants to serve God, but they're constantly uh, internally feeling like they're being sabotaged by their rebellious, sinful nature. Uh, and, and in writing the chapter, Paul understood the, the people. So, of course, he talks as if he's speaking for himself. It's his personal past experience as a really devout Pharisee before he came to the realization of what Christ had done. And in Romans chapter 7 verses 5 and 6, he contrasts the spiritual condition of somebody who's living an unbelieving mindset. That's people whose righteousness depended on keeping the law but they're stuck in this hamster wheel of being on a sinful nature cycle. Why? Because they don't know Jesus. They don't know their true identity. And contrast that with the spiritual condition of somebody who has come into that realization of their union with Christ. I may, may say, call it a born again experience. And uh, people who realize they have no sinful nature left in them anymore. And their righteousness is now purely dependent upon faith in Christ and what Jesus has done. And they've completely stepped away from the practice of keeping the law. So Romans chapter 7 verse 5, it sums up the life of an unbeliever. Paul in Romans chapter 7 starting in verse 14 through 24 describes this. And in Romans uh, 7 verse 6, he sums up the 
believer's life, which Paul then describes in Romans chapter 8, starting around verse 9 especially. And remember, there's no chapter breaks in Paul's letter to the Romans. That's a really important thing to understand. This is a continual thought that he's he's making here. Otherwise, you think, oh my goodness, somebody jumped into uh, Paul's writings and inserted their own brokenness in Romans chapter 7. You know, the sad reality of it is, though, and I've heard a lot of people preach Romans 6, 7, and 8, and they'll say that we have a hard time with 6 and 8, but we all identify really well with Romans chapter 7. And that's actually why Paul wrote it to help us. like It's almost like reaching back down into the pit and saying, I see where you are from your present perspective. I'm here to lift you out. And if you can let the, the words of the apostle Paul identify with you to the point where he can lift you up, then suddenly you can go, okay, I'm not in Romans 7 anymore. I'm in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You begin to realize, wait a minute, if there's no condemnation, where's my sinful nature? dead, buried, crucified with Christ. What the old law was completely powerless to do, God did in the Christic covenant, the new covenant, by sending his son who perfectly fulfilled the law, becoming sin on our behalf when he was crucified, so that you and I might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 3, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. That old sinful Adam nature that was at the very core of your being, at the very root of your old identity, at the, at the, uh, the very root of your rebellion against God, that nature died and was removed from us when we said yes to Jesus, when we put our faith and our trust in Christ, when you say yes to Jesus, something changes on the inside. It's the deal with the gospel. The gospel doesn't come to affirm your sinful nature and say, oh, it's okay, stay just like you are. The gospel comes to change and transform you. Listen, you come to the point where you go, I'm just tired of living the way I've been living. I, I don't know how to change myself. Jesus, I give you my life. You step into a new life in Christ. And what happens? Old things are passed away. All things have become new. Why? Because you've been made a new creation. You can't use the wineskin of your old sinful nature to receive the new wine of the Holy Spirit. He comes in and this time, instead of refurbishing, he takes away the old and replaces it with something brand new. You know, the spirit of God's holiness, people say, could not inhabit our sinful nature. That's why God comes in and he takes away that sin nature so that his spirit can actually dwell within us. And before Jesus was crucified, remember this promise. He said, I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another, a helper, someone who'll be with you forever, the spirit of truth that the world can't receive because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him because he's with you and will live in you. John 14, 16 to 17. So that's the idea here is the holiness of God comes to reside within you. Now, people of faith in the old covenant, listen, they had the, this, this idea of a sinful nature that they were stuck with, which was why they were constantly having to sacrifice uh, for, for their sin, their own sin. And this is one of the major differences between the old covenant 
and the new covenant, which is why the new covenant in Hebrews 8.6 is called much better. For under the new covenant, the Christic covenant, after having removed our sin nature by the death of Christ on the cross, the Bible says, Galatians 4.6, God sent the spirit of Jesus, his son, into our hearts. The very Holy Spirit of God came to live within you. And Paul actually confirms this fact, that God took away your sinful nature. In him, it says in uh, uh, Colossians 2, 11 and 12, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the removal of your sinful nature. By the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God. This is a big deal. So in this moment, what he does, Paul links the old covenant practice of circumcision with new covenant baptism. Nowadays, there's no need for circumcision to be holy or righteous before God. That's old covenant, old law thinking. In the new covenant, we identify with that putting off of the flesh when we step into that place of baptism. It's just a way for us to say, here's what happens. There's a putting away of the flesh. And I am identifying, being saturated in the very identity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now listen to me very carefully. If we don't believe that the death of Jesus Christ completely freed us from the penalty of our sins, from the punishment of our sins, from the, from the wages of our sin, which is death, then we will never truly experience freedom from the condemnation of sin. In the exact same way, if we don't believe and act on the reality that the death of Christ completely freed us from our sinful nature by removing or destroying or putting it away, we'll never experience freedom from the power of sin. So we will always struggle with the power of sin and the power of condemnation if we still think we have a sin nature. We've got to believe what the Bible says. The Bible tells us, for we also had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united in faith with those who heard. That's Hebrews 4, 2. Now, just using Romans 6, 11 and saying, I'm dead to sin, I'm dead to sin, I'm dead to sin, that's not going to work. You got to be convinced that you really died to sin. Romans 6, 6. It's why the truth of Romans 6, 6 comes before the truth of Romans 6, 11. It's a spiritual progression. You can't reckon or count yourself dead to sin and act on this truth unless you first know that your sinful nature was destroyed and removed when you said yes to Jesus, when you received that born again, infilling uh, commission of the Holy Spirit where the veil is removed and you know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he's your Lord and your Savior. Some people think that when they they say that they're born again, they don't have a sinful nature, then they're saying, oh, that means that Christians don't sin, huh, Bill? And then they watch everything you do to see whether or not you actually sin. And the first time you do something that's considered sinful, oh my goodness, they go, ha ha, it's a lie. You still have a sin nature. Uh, this is not about achieving sinless perfection, but I do believe that when you're born again, that God removes that sin nature, thereby he delivers you, not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin. These two things are really important. Penalty and power are really important. And from that place, from that place of being in Christ, 
you now have a Holy Spirit within you that gives you not just the freedom, but the ability in Christ to say no to sin. That's walking in the spirit and not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. That's no longer being a slave to the old flesh anymore. Now you believe and you act on that reality that you've been freed from sin when you said yes to Jesus. You actually can find yourself walking freed from the from the temptations that would pull us into addictions rather than being held in bondage by those things. This doesn't mean that you're going to live perfect in the sense of being faultless or sinless. Sin is still an option for you. But it does mean that over time you can actually develop a habit of overcoming sin which should actually be the normal Christian life. The Bible says we claim to be without sin or sinless. You're deceiving yourself, and the truth is not in you. That's 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. So the scripture tells us God's actually made provision for us when we fail. It's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us or purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, the verses that come after that make it really clear that God has made provision for you and I for failure. It's almost like he's anticipated moments when we find ourselves in a place of weakness. It doesn't excuse our weakness, but it actually gives you grace in those moments. This is why the message of grace is so important, and it's also why it's so maligned. You might ask the question, So why don't I just believe that I'm a new creation in Christ? Why must I also believe that I don't have a sin nature? Well, there's a really, really remarkable bond between faith and truth. The Bible says that our relationship with God, our union with God must be based in faith. Hebrews 11, 6. And our faith must be based on a knowledge of Christ, the truth of what Jesus did on the cross, to be effective, 2 Timothy 2.25 and Titus 1.1. 1, 1. Without faith, without true faith, we can't see God or know God. But that faith that we need comes from him. So we rest and rely on the smorgasbord of the goodness of the faith of God that he provides freely for us just by asking. And listen, the more you and I know and act on the reality of the truth, the faith in in the Son of God, the more we know God and the more effective that we can be for the the Lord, just living in obedience to the Lord. Without a knowledge and obedience to that truth, the more we're going to find ourselves deceived and destroyed. Hosea 4, 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. The knowledge of what? In the new covenant of what Christ has done. We live by faith. And, and here's the deal, that you and I, to be effective for Christ, means that we believe not just that Jesus gave us the power of the Holy Spirit so that we can walk free from our sin nature, free from our old man, but he gave us the power of the Holy Spirit so that he can actually bring out the hidden greatness within you. This, there's stuff within you that that is treasure, is power that he wants to bring out. And here's the amazing thing. Surrendered obedience to the voice of the Lord isn't just hearing God say, stop doing that or stop sinning. It's actually hearing the voice of the Lord say, I want you to, and then fill in the blank with something amazing and incredible and you think is beyond your pay grade. And what happens? The voice of the Lord invites us into a lifestyle of 
miracles, of power, of, of seeing the kingdom of God move through us into this world. If you think that you're stuck with a sin nature, you'll never feel qualified to actually go out and do what God is asking you to do. To say yes to the Lord isn't just to hear his voice say, stop sinning and don't do this and don't do that, to keep you on the straight and narrow. No, it's to hear the voice of the Lord invite you into a powerful existence where you begin to realize that, that, that God created you to do amazing things. The Bible says we are his workmanship, made in Christ Jesus for good works that we would walk in them. His workmanship means that his works, his power is meant to flow through us. So when we think we have a sin nature, we live by our own strength and our own power. We think it's all about sin avoidance. No, this is stepping into an empowered lifestyle. And can I tell you, when you step into an empowered lifestyle, where you begin to realize that the righteousness, peace, and joy built on a foundation of love flows through you for the healing of the world around you, then, my goodness, you begin to realize this is fun. This is exciting. This is better than any drug I've ever tried. This is better than any high I've ever had. This is There's no high like the most high. And so you step into a lifestyle of living, surrendered to the voice of the Lord. You'll find yourself in a whole new world. And in that world, you discover who you truly are. And without the revelation of the power of God within you, you'll think your entire life in Christ is just sin management. And it's not. So I declare freedom over you today. Freedom from sin, freedom to live in righteousness, and in surrendered obedience to the voice of the Lord. I'm at the end of my time. Let me quick give the address. You can write to us at Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. 595 Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. That's the old-fashioned address. Go to BillVanderbush.com. Click on the contact form if you want to write to us. Go to the Give page if you want to support us. Thanks for your prayers. Thanks for listening. This is Bill Vanderbush from all of us here at Faith Mountain Ministries. We just invite you into that freedom in Christ today. Say yes to Jesus. Let him fill your life, fill your heart. You'll never be the same again. Till next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.